I think we could probably all agree that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is probably the, if you had to pick one event that is most important in the span of Scripture, it's probably that one. Maybe we could debate that later. I'm going on a limb a little bit. But regardless, it's very, very important. And if you look at the attention that event receives, both in the prophetic literature ahead of time, in the actual Gospels, right? All four Gospels record it and spend a fair amount of time on that topic. And then as you turn to the epistles and the preaching of the apostles, again, the resurrection of Christ shows up over and over and over again. It is a very important, arguably the most important topic as we consider the history of Christ's work and ministry. I say arguably, if you want to disagree with me with that, that's fine, but it's super important. Why is it super important? Well, there are lots of reasons, but I do want to consider one specific reason this evening. And that reason gets at what we see here in this prescription for how you know if a prophet is for real. If you know that a prophet is from the Lord and you should hear him. Have you ever thought about the claims that Jesus makes? Jesus doesn't make small claims. He makes wild claims. He makes astounding claims. He makes claims that... Um, stretch the limits of what we think are even possible, right? We have a man here who walks on earth and says, I'm a man and I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm perfect. I'm coming to die for sins. I will do all these things and you are to trust me. And so one of the functions, and we'll explore this more as we go through the text, that the resurrection serves is to come and say, here, Christ has made these astounding claims. These claims that seem to stretch the limits of what we can believe. How can I know they're true? Well, because one of the claims Christ said is he said, I'm going to rise from the dead. And he said very specifically in terms of timing and how it would happen. And then it happened. And so as we look at this text tonight, we're going to examine in part, Christ as a prophet, and in particular, look at how it is that we can be confident that what Christ says is true. When Christ makes these claims to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to be our God, why we can be confident that those are true, and the necessity that places upon us then to listen and respond to him. So we're going to examine that this evening. But before we get there, we actually have to recognize Moses is doing really a couple things in this text. We sort of, I sort of just implied it uh, briefly, but the very fact that we need verification of Christ's words comes from what reality? That there are many who claim to speak for God who are not actually speaking for God. There are many competitors for our attention, many who would come and say, I'm speaking the truth, I'm speaking, and I want you to follow me, who don't speak for God, and in fact would lead us into many errors. And so tonight, we're going to look first at the competitors to God's true word. And then we're going to look at the true prophet. But first, let us take a look at these competitors. We start there in verse 9 and following, seeing Moses acknowledge there are lots of competitors to God's truth. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer 
or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. So Moses gives this long list of things that the Israelites are not to do. You'll notice this list actually in some ways parallels some of the things that Moses in Leviticus was telling people, don't go near this stuff. It's really, really bad. The one who does this must die. You know, this idea of um, burning your son or your daughter or seeking out a necromancer, the ones that stick out in my head, I think there were others. But you catch that drift. The question I want to ask is, what's the common theme between these? What draws them together? Why does the Lord group them here together and say, don't go near this stuff? And I think the common thread here is every one of these is a way of seeking knowledge that the Lord has chosen to keep secret through means the Lord has not provided, right? All of these have to do with going and saying, God hasn't shown me or revealed to me whatever, say the future. He hasn't shown, told me what's going to happen a year from now. He's not shown me who's going to win this war or what king will come out victorious. He's not shown me these things. He hasn't told me what the harvest will be like next year and if I should, you know, uh, plant extra or hold it back. But him not having shown me this, I'm going to go find some other way to do that. But now I want to consider why it is that this is so offensive to the Lord. There are, I think, several things to consider. The first thing I would note is that this list has a lot to do with death. You know, there we start with sort of one of the worst forms of murder. There should not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. This talks about child sacrifice, and it's the only one that doesn't directly deal with telling the future, finding out hidden knowledge. Um, and yet, I because it is involved with all the rest of them, it seems likely that somehow this practice of offering a son or a daughter is being shown to show in the God's earnestness and say, speak to me, show me the future. I want your attention. We have this theme, though, of murder, of death. Then you come to the end of the list, a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Both necromancer and inquiring, they'll speak of trying to engage with the dead and get something out of them to go and approach the spirits of those who have died ahead of us and say, tell me what you know, tell me what you see. God isn't speaking to me, so let me know what's going on. You might know of one of the principal examples of this, which is Saul, right before his death. What has happened? Saul has spent his life running from and opposing God, and he comes to this moment where he knows he must face the Philistines, and he's afraid. And God is not speaking to him through the prophets, either Samuel or anyone else. Well, Samuel's dead. He's not speaking to him through anyone else. He's not hearing God in any way. So what does he do? He goes and he seeks out a medium and says, raise up for me the spirit of Samuel. Raise up for the spirit of the dead so I might hear what God is saying. And he goes and he seeks the dead to go find out what's going to happen in this battle. What's going to happen in the future? I must know what is ahead of me. And so we see, I think, first, there's this association between these ways of seeking the future that God has not allowed and the dead, the ways of death. And to this, I would just note that God always reveals himself, right? Not as a God of the dead, but a God of the living. He is a God who loves life, would not have us come and seek out what is dead or seek out to kill others in the pursuit of his knowledge. It is really just kind of perversely opposed to what he is. 
So that's one thing to consider. One reason God would find these things abominable because he is a God of life and does not associate himself with death. The next thing I would note is this language. Anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, interprets omens, or a sorcerer, a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer. Let's think about those themes a, a little bit more. And the, th- question, the way I'd explore that is this question. Is the best response to palm readers and fortune tellers and mediums and, and all this kind of stuff that exists today and has existed for, seems like pretty much as long as there have been fallen humanity, is the right answer to note that most of the stuff is a complete fraud, that the people who claim to practice it know it's false and they don't know the future and, and they get around it by just saying, oh, that's really super vague and let you figure out, is that the right answer? Is that how we respond to this? And we might say, well, yes, of course. I mean, one of the things is you say it's a lie, so you don't have to believe it. But I would challenge that thought briefly. I would do it by reading from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Pick up in verse 16. This is following Paul and Silas's ministry. And we were going to the, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and it continues. What I would note here is that as Luke records these events, what he doesn't say is, oh, this servant girl was a complete fraud. She was not telling the future things weren't happening. Rather, what he emphasizes is the engagement with the demonic. This servant girl was able to, to some extent, somehow, and we don't get into the mechanisms, know something that the people around him didn't know because she was demon-possessed. And so I would warn us and caution us that one of the scary things about such things, fortune tellers, mediums, charmers, the whole thing there, is not that it's a fraud, and very frequently it is simply a fraud, but that the scripture suggests every once in a while it's not a fraud, it's something far scarier. And that all of these things work around and engage with that which is demonic. And so, of course, the Lord would find this abominable, right? Don't go talk to demons to find out my secrets, my hidden things. That is like going and talking to the enemy to find out the will of my commander. Why would you do that? And so here, I want us to recognize there's this element of when God has chosen to hold certain things secret the future, his will about a whole variety of things, certain things in scripture that are obscure, fill in the blank. If we look and say, God has hidden this for me, it's not evident to me in sort of natural revelation, and it's not revealed to me in his word, to go and say, I can't be content with that, and to try to go around his revelation has a demonic element. We can't get around it. We need to be very careful and cautious and aware of these things and one of the challenges we have in our modern world is that we are so materialistic that in many ways we don't always recognize these things for what 
They are, and I struggle even to figure out how to help you see this, so I'll, I'll lean on something C.S. Lewis wrote. He wrote um, in a, a very disturbing but very helpful book, That Hideous Strength. He writes of how the devil likes to work, and he paints this picture, and it's gruesome. He paints this picture of a criminal, and he's been executed, and they behead this criminal, and they keep his head alive, and the purpose of that is to see if they can keep him alive and see if they can talk with him and if he'll have rationality. And what this head becomes is not a mechanism for communicating with this guy who has died, but rather a mechanism for communicating with the demonic. And I paint that picture because we have to understand that in our world it's very naturalistic. Very often where the ancient person might have gone to the necromancer or the diviner or the you know, witch at the, side, at the edge of town, in our world it may have a very scientific veneer, a very institutional and orderly look to it. I would suggest some examples like, you know, you might be aware of in World War II that German Nazi scientists, doctor, I, I hate to use those terms, almost, but would go and do dreadful experiments on Jewish people and others to find out how the body works in various situations. I think of in our world what's gone very, not nearly scandalously enough, but very publicly, the discovery that there's much experimentation and trade in aborted, murdered, unborn children to try to discover new natural things. I think some of this is involved there, where it's that fascination with death and the killing in order to discover that it's not quite the same thing, but it needs to get our alarm bells going. There's something wrong here. There's something that we're prying into secrets that we ought not to do, or we're trying to find out truth in the wrong way. This is tied into the satanic and the demonic. And then I think most fundamentally we need to recognize that these things are competitors with God for our worship and attention and trust. Right? For these nations which you're about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. God has said, you may find my truth in this way. We're going to what that way is in just a moment. But he has laid out a way to hear from him and know his truth and to know his things that he's chosen to reveal. And if he said, this is the way, to go somewhere else is to introduce a competitor to say, well, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go follow these things. And we must recognize that any time we turn away from God's way of knowledge to some other way, go into means he has either not permitted us or he's explicitly restricted us from using we are putting ourselves within the devil's lies so we see one competitor sort of these other mechanisms but there's other competitors that come up as we think about how we know truth how we get revelation how we know more than what we can just see and observe in our daily lives i would now jump down to um verse um 19 and who, I'm sorry, verse 20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. I want to pay attention first to that, the one who speaks in the name of other gods. 
We need to recognize that there are those who will speak in the name of other gods and say, I know the truth. I've got a word for you. You need to hear me. But they say it in the name of another god. Now, in some sense, maybe that's not super threatening to us because in some cases that has no attraction to us. If someone says, well, Buddha said, it's like, okay, well, Buddha has no respect for me. So that's fine. You can say whatever he wants. You can say Allah said, okay, I don't care what Allah says. I don't believe it exists. Who cares? That's not necessarily the danger I think we need to watch for. The danger I want to watch for, I'm actually going to pick up another Lewis illustration here, hopefully maybe more effective, is in, his, uh, in the last battle, as he's painting the picture, he talks about how the Narnians are led astray. And one of the ways they're led astray is by, by this confusion. They say, we're going to mix the idea of Aslan and Tash. And you might understand Aslan as the image of the, the true prince, the true god, and Tash, an image of a false god, a false religion. And as you go through, you find them saying things like, Aslan is Tash, and Tash is Aslan. Or even saying, here's this god, his name is Tashlan. They've taken the truth and mixed it with elements of a lie. And what they do is they attach the familiar name to a false image or a false understanding of God, and therefore infect the Narnians with a lie. And I think that happens very frequently in our world. We need to be on guard against it. The people come and say the name God, but the concept of the God they're using is a mixture. It's a little bit of truth and a, and a little bit of lie. How do, things look, how do these things actually play out in practice? How do we recognize them? How do we recognize these prophets who are claiming to tell us God's truth, but doing it in a false name? I suggest one way we look is when we see this contention. Oh, well, there's many ways to God. You know, you can come through them through Christianity or through Islam or through, you know, me, myself, and I in the woods or, or whatever. There's many ways. Well, even if they use the word God to speak of God, you should recognize that the true God doesn't interact that way. The true God has said, there's one way to know me and there's one way to be saved. And if you go any other way, um, it's false. And so when we hear this, our alarm bells need to go off and say, I don't need to listen to this prophet. I don't need to listen to this teacher. He's wrong. Um, another one I would note is when you get this, and this is really common in our day, what I might say, people who are indistinct about God. You know, they like to use the word, but in their writings or in their teachings or when you engage with them, they never get really down to, well, what is this God like? How do I identify him? It's always just a little bit generic. Well, this God is super loving, and he's always been around, and he always cares for me. But you ask, what has this God done? Well, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about the reality of the gospel. What is this God going to do about sin, or what is this God going to do about death? Well, we're not so sure. Do we serve an indistinct or muddy idea of God? No, the true God is clear, very identifiable. I hope you picked that up in 1 Peter where it's like, here's the true God. He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's all that that means. Um, one, we should be on guard, one last one we should be on guard is those who have invested in sort of Trinitarian and Christological heresies, where those who have said and confused the idea of God and said, no, 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 we don't serve one God three persons, you know, we don't serve the Christ who is two natures and one, two distinct natures and one person forever. Well, no matter what name they use for that God, it's not the Christian God. Again, those are prophets that we say, no, you don't have the truth because you don't 
Come and speak to me in the name of the true God. And so we must recognize that there are many in this world who come claiming to speak in the name of God, who've kind of confused that name, and the name they're using is not the name of our God. And I just tell you, we need to recognize that any prophet, any foreteller of the future, anyone who starts to tell you the truth about this thing or that thing or the other thing, if they're not coming to us in God's name, I would emphasize this. We're free not to fear. We live in a world where people like to come and bombard us with all these visions of the future, right? It's election season. and Every candidate's going to come and say, if you don't vote for me, it's the end of America. Well, um, I, I don't know. You know. I know that you don't know the future, and I don't need to be terrified by your words because you don't speak for God. And we need to keep pushing on that. You know, you get this. I, I was just reading the, uh, the, some article today, and scientists discovered that 2023 was the hottest year ever, the biggest jump and everyone's kind of terrified, and it's kind of like, oh, the world's coming to an end. Well, you don't even claim to speak for God. I don't need to fear. You don't. Despite the fact that you claim to know the future, you don't know the future. But my God does. But then finally, we have this other words that are spoken in God's name. And this is the one I think we have to be very, very on guard for. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak. What a terrible thing to do. To come and say, God said, and to, you know, indicate the God of the Bible, the God who created all that is, the God who is a God of perfect truth, to say God said and use that name to back up lies. It is a terrible thing to do, and yet we live in a terrible world. It happens, and it happens routinely. We have to be aware of that. The case that uh, Moses picks up on there, verse 22, of predicting the future, prophesying the future. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And perhaps many of us are insulated from the sort of future telling in the name of God that exists pervasively in the world around us, but it is happening all the time. I, um, you know, I I guess one example I can think of is uh, back four years ago, there was all this predicting, we know who's going to be the president. And they were all saying Trump was going to be the president. Well, it turns out, They were wrong because he's not the president. They predicted the future. They said, God says Trump's going to be the president. And then Trump didn't end up being the president. That was a tying God's name to a prediction of a future. And we see that as it was not played out, that these so-called prophets, I can go dig up the recordings for you if you're really interested. But you see there's this getting up saying, I speak for God. This bit of the future is going to happen. And the fact that it didn't happen proves the person was lying in God's name. This also happens, of course, very frequently with predicting the second coming of Christ, despite the fact that Christ has said, what, you don't know, so you got to be ready. Every time we get to a round number in uh, the years, uh, it's the end of the world, Christ is coming this year because it's 2000. Well, that didn't happen. 
it's the end of the world because of this or that, and they don't happen again. We've got to recognize these for what these are, people lying in the name of God and reject such things. I could go on and on and perhaps have gone on too far already, but I do want you to hear and be aware. We live in a world that is full of people lying in God's name either just totally making it up and attaching his name to it, or perhaps worse yet, going through and picking through the Bible and finding this verse and that verse and piecing them together and pulling them out of context and sort of writing the Bible into our ends instead of matching our ends to the Bible. This happens all over the place. And we have to be aware that it happens and be on guard against it. But enough of the lies. Let's talk about the truth for a minute. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So we've seen all these ways that we can't have the truth, that we can't seek God's hidden knowledge. But then the question comes, well, where do we turn? Are there things that we need to know about the world and about our lives and about what God wants of us and what he plans for us that we can't just go look and just kind of understand by nature? Well, I think the Lord would tell us, of course, because he provides a prophet. But we note here how he first lays out the need for a prophet. That when the people saw, interacted with God immediately, when he was on the top of Sinai and he thundered down and spoke his covenant, what was their response? Let us not ever hear that again. We'll die. God is too much for us. We cannot stand to hear God directly. Does the Lord rebuke them for this? I mean, you know the answer. But no, he doesn't rebuke them. He says they're right in what they have spoken. We need to recognize that God's plan for us in this life is not to have an unmediated, direct experience of him speaking to us. The pattern he shows over and over again is, you can't speak face to face with me. You will die. I am too much for you. And so we have this need, though, to hear God and to hear his revelation for us to hear him tell us here's what you need to do here's my plan for you to guide us and direct us how are we going to get that and the lord said to me they are right in what they have spoken i will raise up from a prophet like you from among their brothers what does god mean like a by when he's when he says this a prophet like you you there is of course moses but what's special about moses i would direct you to consider a couple of things One is this aspect of Moses speaking face to face with God in the sense that um, we we hear of him going into the tent of meeting, right? And God would speak to him and they'd be in this tent for an extended period of time. And how would Moses come out? He would come out brilliant, shining because he'd been in God's presence. Or you think of when this first happens, what, what goes on? The people hear God speak and they say, we can't stand this. And so what happens next? Moses goes up on Sinai. And so he goes up to where God is dwelling and he has an audience, a conference with God, and he comes down and speaks to the people what God spoke to him. 
There's only one other man we know of who went up and spoke with God on Mount Sinai. Can you guess who that is? It's Moses and Elijah, the two prophets we see on the Mount of Transfiguration, who both have this experience of interacting with, speaking with God up there on Mount Sinai. And I think that helps us see what makes this prophet special. It is a prophet who meets with God where God dwells and hears directly from God, this is what I have for you. But of course, here transitioning to thinking some about Christ, what makes Jesus better than Moses? Why is Jesus superior to Moses that we see argued in the book of Hebrews? The first thing I consider is where did Moses start? Moses started down here and he was called up there and he came back down here. Where did Christ start? Christ started dwelling with God and he came down to us. He starts in a superior position and has a superior knowledge of God. He is right one with the Father. Second, I would note Christ is the Son, not the servant. If I could have my choice in interview, if there was a famous figure I wanted to know and find something out about, and uh, he since died, would I rather be able to talk to his close family member or to one of his employees? Well, I'd probably try to talk to both, but the one that would probably tell me the most would be the close family member who spent much more time with him, who did more with him, who saw aspects of his life that he didn't let into the professional world. He's an image to think about how Christ as the son knows God much more fully. And of course, he is one with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He knows and understands God's revelation and God's will and God's hidden things completely, whereas Moses only understood an aspect. Christ is also perfect and permanent. We think of when Moses prophesied wrongly. When did that happen? It happened when he's before the rock. And what did God say? You will speak to the rock. And what did Moses do? Moses struck the rock. And in doing so, that was an act of prophecy, and he spoke and taught the children of Israel something wrong about God. But Christ's word, Christ's prophecy to us is always perfect. And of course, Christ is complete. He finishes the job, and he gives us a word that is complete. We then think, then, if Christ is this provided prophet, what does that tell us about him? Verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. You know, Christ is the prophet who came after Moses. Listening to him is not a choice. It's not something I can choose to do or not choose. I mean, practically it's a choice, but morally it's not. It's a command. It's a moral imperative. If Christ meets this answer, he is the prophet like Moses, then we must hear him. I would remind us then that means that the call to salvation that goes out to the world is not a call of choice. Oh, make a choice. It is a command to be heard. Repent and believe. You know, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We bring that as a command. God has commanded you, save your own soul. That is his intent for you. The call to salvation goes to all men as a moral imperative. Here is the prophet. Listen to him. Another thing to consider, and this is something that we, we need to get more comfortable pressing people on. Um, and this is a common one. You've heard it before. But right, if Christ, we need to think deeply about Christ's 
claims, his prophetic claims, what he claims to be. And we need to recognize that as he comes and claims to be divine, right? I and the Father are one. They picked up stones to stone him because they knew he just claimed to be divine. We need to recognize that the way Christ spoke, either he's telling the truth and he demands our attention and our faith and our commitment, or to once again think through Lewis, he is uh, very mentally disturbed, or he is a satanically wicked liar. Those are the only options. Whatever Christ is, he is not a good man out there that I can have or not have or follow or imitate. The claims he makes in his own teaching make that impossible. But then that places on us that demand. Christ has made these amazing claims that I have to actually evaluate. Are they true? How can I know? Well, in the book of Mark, we read three times that Christ does something. He gathers his disciples and he says, I'm headed to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified and arise again. And each occasion, it gets a little more specific. So by the end of it, we understand he's going to be crucified. We understand that he's going to be in the grave, what, for three days? And he's going to rise again on the third day. And so when we come and we read in the Gospels and we see these witnesses, these four Gospel witnesses, plus Paul's witness in the epistles, um, that he rose again, we say he made claims, he made a prediction of the future that was absent God's action completely impossible. And it came true. What does that tell me? That he is the prophet that I do need to listen to him, and indeed that I can listen to him, that I can trust him. And the way I would sum this up tonight is actually to borrow Paul's words. You're probably quite familiar with Paul's sermon on, in Athens um, as he stood in the Areopagus there. Um, but sometimes we overlook how he brings that whole um, sermon together. Acts 17, verse 30, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so just two simple points there. God has confirmed by the resurrection of Christ Jesus, which is duly and fully attested to in Scripture by multiple witnesses. He has affirmed that he is his prophet, that Christ speaks for God. And the command that Christ has come to us with is his command, repent and believe. Flee your sins, turn to me, escape the coming judgment. Have you taken those words seriously? Have you grappled with the fact that Jesus is not a story? He is a real historical figure who lived and died and rose and today lives. That God has invested all authority in and responded to his command, not by saying, oh, I'll get around to it. Oh, he's one option among many. But oh, he is the prophet and I must listen and respond.
Let us pray. Father, I pray that in this world that is just so full of competitors, so full of those that would draw our attention from Christ's truth to Satan's lies, that you would make us wise, what does Christ say, wise as serpents, to discern the truth from the lie, to reject error and cling to Christ. I pray also, Lord, that you would make us earnest in our trust in Christ Jesus, that it would be of first-order importance to us, that we would recognize and see that this is not a situation where there's simply spiritual things that we can't know and we're walking blind. But indeed, yes, we believe by faith, but we believe by faith that is verified by historical reality. That we lean upon what you have proved to be true by what you actually did in our world, observed by real people who gave real testimonies to it. I pray this truth would embolden and strengthen our faith, make us very confident in Christ, in his word, in his work. And it's in his name.